Illusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we infuse weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, the politics of science. But first up, here's the news with Ed Pollitt. Over 200 light years from the Earth lies a star with a graphic name, HIP 56948. Astronomers using the 2.7-metre telescope at the McDonald Observatory in Texas in the US made high-resolution observations of the star and could find no discernible differences between it and our own sun. They say that this makes it a prime candidate to search for alien life. The analysis was carried out by Georges Melendez of Mount Stromlo Observatory in Western Creek, Australia, and Ivan Ramirez of the University of Texas in Austin, US. Other very sun-like stars have previously been identified, but those have several times more lithium than the sun, while HIP 56948 is almost identical to the sun in this respect as well, making it an even closer match. Some studies have suggested that stars with less lithium are less active and experience fewer solar flares that can bathe planets in deadly radiation. If this turns out to be true, it would increase the chances that this particular star might have orbiting planets that are habitable. Peter Backus of the SETI, or Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, Institute in Mountain View, California in the US, is heading the Institute's upcoming search for alien life with the new Allen Telescope Array. He says the newly identified twin is on the HABCAT list, a list of about 17,000 high-priority targets that SETI aims to investigate for signals from alien civilizations, It's on the list, but I don't think it will be given any special treatment, he told New Scientist Online. It's still a matter of speculation on just what range of stars could host habitable planets. We will eventually get around to observing all of the stars on the list. The star does differ in one way from the Sun. It appears to be about one billion years older. That should make it all the more attractive for SETI, Ramirez says, because older stars have had more time to produce intelligent civilizations. Assuming that these stars have planets, and those planets have life, then you have given more time for that life to evolve, he says. Although astronomers hope to observe a radio signal from a civilization around the star, its distance of over 200 light-years from Earth means none of our radio or television signals would have had time to reach it yet, he says. If there is life there, and intelligent life, then they haven't heard from us yet. Dr Peter Waterhouse and Dr Mingbo Wang have received the 2007 Prime Minister's Prize for Science. Their discovery of how to harness a plant's own viral defence mechanism is a major scientific breakthrough that has put Australia at the forefront of gene technology. Dr Waterhouse and Dr Wang were each presented with a gold medallion and a cheque for $150,000 at a ceremony at Parliament House in Canberra on the 19th of September. 
While investigating how plants respond to virus attack, Dr Waterhouse, Dr Wang and their team at CSIRO Plant Industry in Canberra discovered a new way to control plant genes that effectively gags or silences these genes. Their discovery has generated more than 100 patents and is being applied in areas that range from protecting plants from disease to creating crops that may in future produce better biofuels. Also honoured on the night were four recipients of Science and Science Teaching Awards. They include two of Australia's most promising young researchers and two exceptional science teachers. The $50,000 Prime Minister's Prize for Excellence in Science Teaching in Primary Schools was awarded to Cheryl Capra for her leadership in teaching and critical thinking. She has led an invigoration of science teaching and learning, which is paying huge dividends in student achievement at her school at Albany Hills in Queensland. Melbourne teacher Francesca Calati was awarded the $50,000 Prime Minister's Prize for Excellence in Science Teaching in Secondary Schools. Participation in chemistry at St Helena Secondary College in Eltham North has tripled in the last few years thanks to her introduction of an innovative combination of practical chemistry and nanotechnology into the classroom. Tasmanian mathematician and ecologist Beth Fulton has been awarded the $50,000 Science Minister's Prize for Life Scientist of the Year. This 34-year-old from CSIRO Marine Research in Hobart has combined her intuition for maths with a passion for marine biology to create ecosystem models that are used in Australian fisheries management and by governments around the world to predict and manage human interaction with the marine environment. Perth civil engineer Mark Cassidy has been awarded the $50,000 Malcolm McIntosh Prize for Physical Scientist of the Year. The 33-year-old has developed sophisticated mathematical models that have led to improvements in the capacity of giant oil and gas platforms off the northwest coast of Australia to withstand the stresses of storms, ocean currents, earthquakes and other forces of nature. His advice is sought by the designers and builders of the platforms and his modelling has led to changes to international safety guidelines. These awards recognise the commitment and achievement of our talented scientists as well as the important work of our dedicated science teachers who are inspiring the next generation of Australian scientists and innovators. Previously on Diffusion, we've talked about the science of politics when we've looked into anthropology and the brain and territoriality, and occasionally we've talked a little bit about the politics of science. And with an election coming up, it's a good time to talk about the politics of science again. I'm talking to Charles Willock in the studio and Patrick Ruby, our producer. Science was abused just very recently with the pulp mill decision in Tasmania. For example, they couldn't describe how the pulp mill would affect air pollution because it's not in the terms of reference. So all the things that they wanted them to ignore, they carefully set out, and the things that they could include, they set out. So they got a report that supports the policy they'd already decided on. And um, all this after the discussion they had on the ABC a couple of weeks ago about the, um, the pulp mills. What did they say? There was a site that would have been more suitable than the site that they were, they were currently looking at for the construction of the pulp mill and they had decided not to build there. So I would have thought it was quite a heated discussion actually and I think the audience ended up being on the side of those who were protesting the development of the mill. Uh, I'd have to say that I probably was convinced by the argument against Um, and it just comes as a surprise hearing from you then 
Ian, that they're deciding to go ahead with it. Well, as I said, I think it's another case where instead of having reality-based politics where you find out what's happening in the world, you get someone to write you a report, and then you decide on the policy that's appropriate, they do the opposite. The thing that concerned me was if that's the way they make decisions about industrial things such as pulp mills, how are they going to make decisions about nuclear power stations? So if they're saying before the election, oh, well, we'll have a plebiscite, and yet, in fact, the way they make decisions is they precondition their reports uh, to be in favour, then they, for example, spend $12 million on an Aboriginal settlement and they make sure that they have control over all of the access to the Aboriginal locations for possible nuclear waste dumps in the Northern Territory. And then after it, they say, oh, well, we've decided and we're not actually going to give you uh, an insight into or a, um, a chance to comment, then I think that's uh, a seriously wrong way of approaching things. One possible alternative, and I'm not suggesting this is necessarily practical, but maybe something to think about, that if we have important issues, and the environment is certainly an important issue, as is uh, various types of uh, power requirements, if we have a referendum on each of the important issues, people can then decide at the time of the election as to what they're going to choose, which way they're going to go, whether they're going to go large-scale industrial nuclear power or whether they're going to go small-scale networked-type systems to solve the energy problem. A conscience vote for the people. Yeah, pretty radical, I know. But yes. So you mean sort of more like voting by by specific policies as opposed to voting for a party yes. that then has its own policies? Yes. A conscience vote. So you don't have to stick to party lines. You actually vote for what you think is the best policy on a one particular bit of legislation. And once, once the issues have been resolved, and if, of course, they are clearly resolved one way or another, it makes it very easy for groups who can either completely or partially fulfil those requirements for all of those policies that have been decided on. So, if you like, it would be some kind of two-stage or multi-stage uh, selection process but at least there is, seems to be a possibility that the policies are decided by the people and the people that administer those policies are decided by the people. And that would save all sorts of nonsense that goes on at present. You could also actually give them policies, which they seem to be otherwise short of most of the time. Well, there does seem to be a rather lack of vision. I think, I think the problem is that they haven't got a vision. They haven't got people with a scientific vision. They've got lawyers and businessmen uh, and economists who are, who are great people to have and have their insight and the way of looking at things that's really important to actually get things done. But I think maybe it's a, an opportunity to get more scientists and engineers into, into the policy selection idea. Like yeah. Dr Carl. We want somebody who knows what's going on in politics. We want a scientist who who has a voice, surely. Brendan Nelson, perhaps? 
I Brendan Nelson, I believe, started life as a doctor, but I don't know did, that, that makes him he did a scientist start life like Dr. As a medical Carl. doctor. Um, well, Dr. Carl's got a medical degree, doesn't he? And a physics degree and an engineering degree. Ah, so he's more than just a mere doctor. He's much more than just a mere doctor. In fact, if you call him Dr. Carl, he'll tell you it's not just an honorary title because he doesn't have a PhD. Oh, I see. He's, he's a modest fellow, which may be a disadvantage in politics, perhaps, but... Um, who else do we have that's a scientist and not a, not just a doctor? Well, I think there's... We have got... Oh. Go on. I was going to give you an example of another doctor, but no, that's not what Ian wanted, obviously. No, I want more than just... Look, we get doctors, we get lawyers, we get economists, but we I think we rarely get scientists and engineers. And I'm curious about... In, Aus- in Australian politics... Um, look, you've got... In American politics, Al Gore has a science degree. Um, in Australian politics... Who else, other than the doctors, the medical doctors, what other science-qualified people do we have? We don't even have a Ministry for Science anymore. That was abolished by Bob Hawke back 20-odd years ago. Actually, that sort of expands the whole idea of who we should include in politics or who we should allow into politics. Uh, On a slightly radical note, maybe gymnasts should be included because, uh, well, I mean, on on, (laughs) a... In a serious sense, they have a different view of life, and so, if you like, um, their way of looking at the world from from a purely physical point of view might, in fact, be quite a quite a beneficial one, or at least a challenging one, for um, for most other people because they don't see it the same way, and that could stimulate the the ability to stimulate the ideas by having a different perspective might be really quite a useful one, especially for people who are quite skilled in their different ways of learning or different ways of processing things. They'd so also be rather... Or, or other athletes in politics, you think? For could, example... Could, could you imagine... Sporting um, celebrities. Yeah, could you basically. imagine Ian Thorpe as an MP? Well, I was thinking of gymnasts particularly because of their ability to do backflips, but... <laughs> <laughs> and that's very valuable in politics, of course. Well, so it seems, yes. At least rhetorically. Well, what about the possibility of having someone who is very good at presenting things, such as an actor but can be primed by uh, a bureau or, or by um, scientists, scientists or, or uh, engineers so that, in fact, they can be fully briefed, present the case particularly well, have no personal or emotional investment in it. Their job uh, and, and their you know, continued employment is just on their ability to present. One of my friends actually is looking at running for the Senate. Um, he has a physics degree. Um, that's I don't know what area he's looking to represent, um, but there'll be at least one more person with a science background uh, running in the election, to some degree. Well, what, That's good. What you about my vote? What about what about another possible approach? I mean, he's you, sometimes on this station, but I won't say his name. Right, very wise. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what what about having uh, some kind of? I mean, extending the possibilities in terms of about, uh, people's abilities or learning styles or perspectives on the world. What about we have a rotating members of parliament? So instead of having one group of lawyers being employed for, for three years or a variable number of years, depending on whether they can actually sustain the pace or not, um, we have a rotating series. So, for example, we could have every three months or every six months we could change the people who are doing the presenting or the people who are doing research or have some sort of rotating process. We might, for example, have women 
occupying all of the positions in Parliament for one segment of three months. So there's a bunch of scientists talking about politics, and perhaps that's why we don't have more scientists in <laughs> politics. Lachlan Watmore on guitar. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2SCR.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. While we're on current politics and the upcoming election and all of the issues, so we've got the environment where we've got a report that was specifically written so the government could be pro-industry and pro-environment at the same time. I believe, Charles, you've heard a whiff of um, classified research being publicly announced at the Lucas Heights Nuclear Research Facility. As far as I know, the classified information is still classified. More, it is a matter of shining light on the information which is publicly available. It involves research on nuclear enrichment and possible fuel reprocessing, research being conducted by a company called Silex Systems Limited. The acronym stands for Separation of Isotopes by Laser Excitation. If, as it seems, they have come up with a cheaper, improved way of processing nuclear materials, that could well be important in the nuclear power debate. In addition, it could well be influential in any decision by Australia moving towards nuclear fuel reprocessing. The possibility of acceptance by Australia of nuclear waste, and even to Australia becoming a nuclear weapons state. Since millions of dollars of Australian taxpayers' money has been directed towards the research, And since the government's rhetoric seems deceptive, at least, it seems worthwhile having a look at the situation. And when when they use the the term enrichment, what does enrichment actually mean? Enrichment means taking the ore, in this case uranium oxide, U3O8, and processing it to separate the fissile component, about 1% uranium-235, and separating it from the non-fissile component, essentially uranium-238. In essence, you are enriching the ore in isotopes that you want and discarding the isotopes that you don't want. Concentrating it. Yeah. What is the difference in process, scientifically, between when you're making, when you're enriching uranium in terms of making a weapon and when you're enriching it in terms of using it as an energy source? For applications such as generating nuclear power, the uranium is not enriched anywhere near as much. Typically, it is enriched around 3 to 5% and up around the 90% mark for weapons grade. There's a big gap between what the general public believe about science and what is actually happening. There have been significant develops in enrichment processes in the past decade or so. Most people believe that uranium enrichment can only be done by converting it to the hexafluoride form and then separate it using ultra-high-powered, ultra-high-speed rotating. Oh, centrifuges. Uh, Yeah, centrifuges. But there are a lot of other ways being explored, and people who are interested can find out more information on Uranium Enrichment Wiki. 
The important thing is that while centrifuging is still popular, laser processing seems increasingly attractive. One such laser method works as follows. If the atom has a slightly lighter nucleus, uranium-235 for example, that will change the corresponding electron energy levels or fine structure very slightly. By precisely tuning a laser to one of these energy transitions, it is possible to selectively ionise the appropriate atom, thereby changing the chemical reactivity of the lighter atom, for example. This converts a problem of separating a very slight density difference to a problem of separating two chemical compounds, potentially a much easier problem to solve. However, we don't know exactly what approach is being used by Silex. Um, Can I just ask a question here? Our Prime Minister has told us that he would like us to have nuclear power as an energy source in Australia, but unlike every other country in the world that has ever had nuclear power, we would be the only nation that didn't also have nuclear weapons. Why would nuclear fuel enrichment processes be classified if they weren't for military purposes? That's exactly the point, and that's exactly what we were trying to tease out. The other parts of that equation are highlighted in a report by Greenpeace titled Secrets, Lies and Uranium Enrichment, the classified Silex project at Lucas Heights. Further issues were raised late in 2006 by the Australian Conservation Foundation and the Medical Association for Prevention of War, www.mapw.org.au, who published a report, An Illusion of Protection, the unavoidable limitations of safeguards on nuclear materials and the export of uranium to China. The key issues raised by Greenpeace seem to be these. Those features that make laser processing attractive are the same as those that facilitate a secret enrichment plant. They are extremely low energy requirements, relatively simple and modular processes, modularity which enables versatility of deployment, significantly lower overall power and capital costs. Importantly, if other countries suspect that we are going down the nuclear weapons route under the guise of nuclear power generation, and that it would be difficult to detect, why wouldn't they want to upgrade their own nuclear positions? Okay, so I suppose that brings us back to the point of, well, if we're supposed to only be using low-grade enrichment and not going to sort of the higher grades which are needed for weapons quality, why is it that there's such secrecy about it? Are we scared, perhaps, that other countries would nick our technology for more efficient energy production? Well, there would almost certainly be a commercial aspect to it. If you have a new or better method of enriching uranium there would be a substantial commercial value to that. However, if the process was only going to be used for improving medical services or for power plants, for example, one would have to wonder why such information was classified rather than just patent protected. Uranium ore is relatively readily available around the world. Concentrating it is what seems to make it expensive. And there seems to be a fairly uh, rich source of it in Australia, as far as I understand. Australia has about 40% of the commercially available, essentially high-grade, low-cost uranium ore. I believe Canada comes next. At the moment, when the world looks to Iran or North Korea 
or previously Iraq, when we were looking for evidence of a nuclear weapons program, one of the things we were looking for was evidence of centrifuge parts being imported into the country, already existing in the country or visible from the air or through spies or, or whatever. What would we be looking for with laser separation? That's a whole lot less clear. If you find some countries importing a lot of particular sized tubes of high tensile strength aluminium, you might say, I wonder why they're doing that. Large centrifuge plants are hard to hide, use a lot of energy, and put out various detectable signatures. However, the laser processing plants can be much smaller, a lot easier to conceal, and maybe modules can also be distributed if one is really serious about hiding them. Given the particularly energetic push by the government towards nuclear power generation, the possibility of nuclear fuel reprocessing, and the seeming relative ease of constructing nuclear weapons if one has the relevant pure materials, it must be something for the public to wonder about. The Medical Association for the Prevention of War have their website at www.mapw.org.au. And now, The Art of Conversation by Fur Patrol. That's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions or wild, passionate praise, then send email to diffusion at 2SER.com. That's diffusion at 2SER.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program, Charles Willock. Diffusion has been produced and panelled by Patrick Ruby in the studios of 2SCR Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Just do it.